Hi, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan, and I have a very special guest today for the Influence Continuum. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for months. Uh, Jason Kander, uh, thank you so much for agreeing to come on my podcast. And I had forgotten I was on your podcast, but you just reminded me as we first uh, talked to each other. And I just want to read a short intro and say you were a of uh, you are a former army captain, intelligence division. I seem to remember you went to law school also. Yeah, yeah, I'm a recovering but, lawyer. But it's not in your bio. Anyway, we'll get yeah, back well, to that. Not that big of a part of my life, I guess. <laughs> Got it. But you served in Afghanistan. You are the first millennial ever elected to statewide office. And you were a rising star in the political scene, very activist. You tell a story, and I loved your book. This is Thank what you. we're promoting today, Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. And your previous book, which was a New York Times bestseller, was Outside the Wire. And I haven't read it yet, but I promise you I will, because okay. I was so excited. I love listening to you read your voice, uh, your book with your own voice and your wife, Diana, too. I'm a big fan of authors reading their own work, because you mm -hmm. just feel, and it, you're, you're just so yeah. cool if I can be a fanboy for a minute and just say you're <laughs> a cool, really cool person. Thank you. Uh, and you were described being in uh, uh, President Obama's office, and he's like, I think you should run for president, which is like, holy mackerel. <laughs> and you were this rising star in the political scene, and then you had a moment of realizations that you really had PTSD all of these years, that you've been all guns firing, to use an army metaphor, like all systems go, the world needs us, we've got to do everything. And you weren't paying attention to all the signals your body and your mind were mm -hmm. sending to you, but you had that deep realization and got help. And now you are dedicated to helping others, particularly veterans. And I am so much a fan for the wounded healer a uh, story of like, oh, yeah, hey, sure. I've been there and there's life after trauma, etc. Well, cetera. I mean, as, as you know, because uh, I'm familiar with your story, because, you know, we talked about it on my show, uh, is sometimes that is, uh, you know, the, the sort of the best messenger for that stuff because it's like, and I think a lot of it is because part of having people come to you when you feel broken and try and help you put yourself back together is it's very difficult not to feel judged and therefore become defensive. But when somebody can say to you, like, I've been broken too, it's, you just don't feel quite so judged, I think. Yeah. And there's this whole culture of macho manism that I think is also uh, especially raised uh, in the military of like, I'm tough. You know, I went through <laughs> boot camp training. Right. I can handle it, and we're human, and and uh, you know I'm just so in awe of your taking care of yourself, but also wanting to help others along your own healing journey. Yeah, th I mean the the book and just the work that I do. I work is a well, the work I do at Veterans Community Project, and then just you know talking about it publicly. What I do now, like with the book and with this to me is really the most important public service I've ever done. And it, it has nothing to do with running for office. So not where I thought my life was heading, but I'm very 
pleased with it. But let me just state categorically, I'm a bit older than you, I'm 68, but my impression as a trained mental health professional is everyone's traumatized. Oh, like yeah. Everybody, the pandemic, the economy, the climate crisis, world events, and with the social media you know, like infused in people's bloodstreams where I feel like there's an addiction problem for so many people, um, people are freaked out and numbed out and are probably experiencing a lot of the symptoms that, that you've experienced. So I, let's talk about trauma, what it, it means, what, how it affected you and your wife. Your wife, I loved when your wife said, it's like secondhand smoke, you know, you're living with someone with PTSD and you're, you're getting all the residue. And I must confess, my wife has said the same to me, and I'm mm -hmm. just an activist, former mm -hmm. cult member, but I'm taking on all these big billion-dollar cults. So mm -hmm. she feels the stresses of my existence. So please sure. take it over. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that was really important to me with the book was not to gatekeep trauma and not to have anybody read it and feel like, well, one, to not have anybody choose not to read it because they go, well, I'm not a veteran. Like, it doesn't apply to me. Or I w I'm not in politics. It doesn't apply to me. I wanted to make sure that I, I leveraged the fact that because I've had a unique experience, I've run for president with a secret psychological disorder, that that would get people to read the book mm. because that is a unique story. But I didn't want to just make the book so singular that it only applied to people with either of those experiences, you know, like being in politics or being in the military. And I didn't want the book to be a war memoir of the type that, you know, usually uh, men in their mid fifties read about, you know, like I mean, right. the, the bookshelves that are full of that stuff because I wanted it to appeal to more people. So it was very important to me to get across one of the things I had learned in therapy, which w was that, and is that trauma is trauma and that, you know, my brain doesn't know what your brain experienced and therefore doesn't find, uh, you know, gauging its own trauma against yours to be useful in any way. And so I spent a lot of years trying to rank my trauma out of existence, looking at other people in the military who had been physically wounded or who had deployed longer or more times and saying like, well, I, it can't be PTSD what I have because I didn't do that. But it wasn't until I went to therapy that I learned that that was a completely irrelevant uh, factor and that PTSD doesn't care about that. Just like when people come up to me and they say, well, I didn't go to war or anything. And, you know, I tell them like, I don't know what that has to do with anything. Like if you had a car accident, if you yep. had a divorce, if you lost a loved one, if you survived cancer, if you live in 2022 and watch the news, like it doesn't matter. You can be traumatized and my trauma doesn't diminish yours. Exactly. And it's not a it's not a race, and it's not a I'm you know I suffer more than you. The goal, as a mental health professional, I want people to be functional and right. happy and fulfilled and have fulfilling jobs and fulfilling relationships and be able to be present in their own life. I mean, exactly for me, a big part of trauma. When I think about those years, one of the first things I think of is I I feel like I kind of missed those years in a sense that, you know, I, I had this really, you know, when I look back on it, like incredible set of experiences. I mean, you know, you mentioned sitting with President Obama and having him say that kind of thing to you, but also, you know, 
I became friends and remain friends with A-list, you know, celebrities and got to go to movie premieres and give big speeches in front of big crowds, but also really the more important stuff like potty train my son and go on vacation with my family and stuff. And I look back on those years and I go, man, I wish I had been mentally healthy so that I could feel like I experienced those things. Right. And now and I'm in this age of my life, this stage of my life, post-traumatic growth, I get to do a lot of really cool stuff and I feel like Highlight, I get to be there for Post-traumatic growth is a right. very important construct in mental health field. People only think of the negative side mm -hmm. versus the thriving side. I'm I had never heard the that. term. I had yeah. never heard the term before I went to therapy. I had never heard the term, you know, the first time I ever heard the term post-traumatic growth, was after I had announced that I was going to go get help and it made, you know, it was major national news. And so I, I tried to stay away from all that news and not have anybody tell me about it for, you know, at least the first few days. But eventually, you know, I started, I settled into therapy and, and I, I did notice some of the stories. And, I, and the first time I ever heard the term post-traumatic growth, it was a story about me in the Boston Globe. And somebody said he could be the poster child for post-traumatic growth. And at the time, it really bothered me because it felt like a lot of pressure I didn't need at that moment. But it, but it at least taught me the term. And now yeah. I feel like my role is to help people understand that post-traumatic growth is real and it's achievable and it is worth going after thousand percent and that's partly why i'm so excited to talk with you and and highlight this book this i just couldn't stop listening to this book <laughs> it was you're, it's so down to earth real you don't pull any punches few curse words here or there but it's just like really like everyone would benefit i feel from listening right. to this book well I, I tried to write a memoir that was an actual memoir i mean i i don't i don't enjoy reading quote unquote political memoirs because they're really just long pamphlets for the candidate you know mm. and and i'm not a candidate anymore and i mean maybe one day i will be again but i it's not something that like i'm not arranging my life around preserving that opportunity mm -hmm. and and so to me uh i knew that if i was going to tell this story accurately and in a way that was productive I, I didn't, I didn't need to be the hero of every part of this story. And, and so that's why, you know, I've got friends who, you know, they've read it and they've said like, boy, there's parts of this book where I don't like you very much. Mm. And I'm like, well, then it did its job because I didn't like me very much during those parts, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amazing. Um, there's so many directions i want to talk to you about but let, let's i'd like you to start by talking a little bit about your work with the veterans mm -hmm. and and what programs you're initiating what research sure. is being done to help yeah. others well i'll tell you the the story first of sort of how it happened it's a great part of Correct. my story and of the book which is that um you know, I, I announced uh, on October 2nd of 2018 that I was going to drop out of public life and go get help at the VA. Um, well, six weeks before that, I had toured this place, Veterans Community Project, which is a Kansas City-based nonprofit um, started by a group of combat veterans to do two things. One, to curb the suicide epidemic by uh, lowering the barriers to, to uh, services and basically creating an outreach center where any veteran 
uh, regardless of the nature of their service, could walk in and get help, pretty much any kind of help they need. Um, and then what they're better known for is they also created a village of tiny houses uh, with wraparound comprehensive case management services to transition homeless veterans back into permanent housing out in the community. And they do this with an unheard of 85% success rate. And so it was a really inspiring place. Uh, I was in a very bad part of my life when I toured it, but it was a, it was a, a, a it stood out because it was a good day. It was an inspiring day. And then six weeks later, I, I go to the VA to try to start getting help. Just the day before I announce I'm going to, I'm going to do that. And they tell me, well, it's going to be a few months before you can get enrolled in the system and start getting weekly therapy. And I was like, not in a good way. Like I, they were telling me this on the same day that I was in suicide hold at the emergency department at the VA. Mm. And I didn't really know what else to do. So I called my friend who was one of the co-founders of Veterans Community Project and the CEO. And I was like, hey, I'm making this announcement tomorrow. I, I, this is what they're telling me. What do I do? And he's like, well, why don't you just come down here? So six weeks after the VIP, you're going to be the next mayor of Kansas City tour. I walked through the outreach center like thousands of other Kansas City vets. And they um, do what they do for a lot of people. They handled my paperwork for me. They knew the right way to do it. And uh, a week later, I had my first therapy appointment at the VA. Yeah, but the doctor didn't believe that you oh, yeah. had met Obama, and he thought you were delusional, which I oh, yeah. thought was hysterical. That was, uh, yeah, that, my first day at the VA um, <laughs> was, you know, everybody kept recognizing me, which was kind of humiliating. But then this psych resident didn't, which at first was a real relief. And then I got irritated when he, like, didn't believe my story, and, and then he... <laughs> He thought I was hearing voices, and, and uh, I, he must have figured it out because he ended up like letting me leave. But um, but yeah, so so they they helped me out, and then you know I was going through weekly therapy and having a lot of success with it over the period of a few months. And at that time, Veterans Community Project had been so successful in Kansas City that all these other communities around the country were reaching out and saying, "Hey, can you do that same thing here?" And they were kind of you know starting to try. But I was giving them a lot of advice because I had created a national organization before. And finally, uh, my buddy Brian Meyer, the co-founder and CEO, said to me, he was like, hey, man, uh, instead of giving us advice, like, why don't you just come on full time? And so three years ago, I became the president of National Expansion. Great. And um, very, it's the best civilian job I've ever had. And in that time, we have started building campuses in the Denver area, St. Louis, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Oklahoma City, we, where we've purchased property and we're, we're about to, uh, you know, jump into the Milwaukee area as well. So, uh, it's just a really rewarding, um, kind of work and people, if they're interested in supporting us, they can go to VCP, like veterans community project.org. And actually all of my royalties from invisible storm go to veterans community project. Wow. So I, I, I know about solutions for homeless people you're targeting vets, but having a place, a residence where services can, checks can be mailed, where people can come and doctors is crucial. And with the uh, pushing out of psych hospitals, so many people are on the streets and they just need some care. And it's less expensive for everybody to put them in these mini houses. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, the but model is really revolutionary um, because what it does, specifically with regard to veterans, is it 
it recreates the last time in their lives in most cases when they were stable and successful, right? Because if you walk on to one of our campuses, first of all, they're, they're really nice. They, they, you would never walk on and go, Oh, this is for homeless people. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's really, it's really beautiful. We raise the property values of the surrounding area. I mean, which is pretty rare for an organization yep. that, that is bringing in homeless people, but that's the level of construction and quality we put into it. And, what it looks like is it looks like active duty housing and and it feels like when you were on when you were in the military right down to the fact that when you first get there you're going to get most of your services uh at the community center for the residents which is in the center of the village uh-huh. and that is just like how when you're on active duty the place on post where you get your haircut and where you shop for groceries and where you go to the bank and everything, it's usually all in one building. And if at the most they're across the street from each other. So if we're transitioning people into being, you know, fully contributing members to society, we really, what we do is we restart the military to civilian transition back at day one. And we're just mm. like, Hey, let's start it over. And let's gradually over the course of your time with us, we'll, you know, orient you to going out into the community for your work, for your services, for whatever, so that by the time you leave, on average, 14 months is about how long people stay with us. You know, in those last couple months, you're like anybody else in town. You know where you go for your stuff. You're totally stable. You just happen to still be in the village with us. So when you leave, you're really fully prepared to stay housed and not recidivate into homelessness. Yeah, it's amazing. So... um where to go next? Can can I can I pivot to Sure, yeah, we talk about whatever you want. The political situation right now is so polarized as I wrote in the cult of Trump, there are forces, external forces like Russia, maybe China, Iran and a few other state actors, but there are internal forces including former military intelligence who know about psychological warfare. Some of them have hooked up with individuals from the extreme Christian right, Mm -hmm. the ones that think they need to take over the government and get rid of gay rights and women's rights and and impose their version of reality. And so we're being bombarded by bad actors, but people are clueless. They don't Mm -hmm. understand how their data is being collected without their permission and how these algorithms are being used. And I, I want to like help. We need to come together. We need local organization with real relationships, not just people on who your followers on Twitter, but like real people. Uh, and we need to be solution focused and mm-hmm. not just problem focused. Please, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, I, I have two thoughts about this. The first is that. Um, that this right-wing extremism, this authoritarianism is something that is uh, sweeping across the the world, right? Yes. And and I think as Americans, we have this, you know, America-centric point of view on most things, uh, which has been the case for a long time, Mm -hmm. um, where we tend to think that we invented most things, right? So that could be, (laughs) you know, everything from, I don't know, like French fries, which I don't know where they were invented, but I assume maybe (laughs) perhaps France, I don't know. But like wherever, you know, all this stuff, we just assume, well, that's an American thing, right? And and I think we've done in many ways the same with quote unquote Trumpism because Mm -hmm. what, and, and what I think is important to recognize is that, you know, this authoritarianism versus democracy conflict is one that is happening worldwide. Yes. And 
Trump is the guy who was, you know, standing there uh, and took advantage of the opportunity at the time. And and now it's become, you know, in America, it's, it's Trumpism. But I think it's really important for all of us to recognize that this is a global battle and we are we are a battleground in it. And so we have to win it here because we are such a significant battleground for the rest of planet Earth. And that means that every fight for democracy really matters in a in a really outsized way. County yeah. clerks races, secretary of state races, particularly in swing states. This stuff has enormous stakes, not just for America, but for the world. So that's my first thought. My second thought on it is that I think a lot of our uh, struggle to be able to connect with one another has to do, I mean, obviously, as you pointed out, a lot of it has to do with technology, but there's, we're limited in, in, in undoing that, obviously. However, I think that another big part of it is a cultural distance between uh, each other that hasn't existed in the past. Part of that's technology, but a big part of that also is that this is the longest consecutive period in American history without some form of mandatory service, which means that there's no real shared experience for Americans anymore. And that deprives Americans of any sense of national identity. And I don't mean identity like ethnic or demographic identity. I right. mean like answers to the question of what does it mean to be American? Because right now it's like it's like one in three people watch the Super Bowl. Everybody has a view on you know what happened at the Oscars with Will Smith and Chris Rock. I mean, that's not sufficient for right. creating a, 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 a sense of national unity. And it used to be that, and I don't, I don't think you know, service has to be the military if we were to do this, but I think there's a lot of value in you know people, in every American spending a year with people who are not exactly like them and don't see the world exactly like them. I think it, it causes people to see a greater humanity in one another. Yes. So. No, I, I, and my friend Dave Troy, who's a disinformation researcher, we've, he, put together many important talks, including a TEDx on dismantling QAnon, really is pushing the idea of a mandatory national service, mm. at least a year, where people are deliberately introduced to others, yeah. different, different races, different religious backgrounds, send the city people to the rural areas, send the mm. rural people to the city areas to just like experience the the and and get more of a um national pride back or some type of national sort of a vested interest in the national outcome right and yes and because because right now like obviously i've done a lot of work on voting rights and so i i would use that as an example mm -hmm. um if you are a white person from the suburbs and you're being told to care about voting rights and you're being told that some people's vote is being suppressed well, you know, it, you may be, maybe you're inclined to, to believe that kind of thing, but if you're not, it's very difficult to convince you because you don't know any, I mean, the likelihood is you don't know anyone whose vote would be suppressed. And so it's, and so not only is it hard for you to buy into the, the logical argument, uh, but on top of that, it's very difficult to extend empathy without vulnerability and opening yourself up. Right. And if, and if you are going to, feel bad about them well we have sort of this national avoidance of our of our trauma as a country 
and it's what's happening with shootings. You know, uh, you know, it's it's not just that people want to keep their guns. Sometimes it's that people are like, I'm not letting that in. That won't feel good. I I choose not to feel or acknowledge that. And and if and it's a lot harder to not feel or acknowledge another person when you know someone who lives in their neighborhood or who might know them. Right. And uh, and so I think that's really important. And I think it goes both directions. I, I don't just think it's a matter of um, you know, making people more progressive. I think it's also about people who are more progressive having a greater understanding and a greater sense of relationship with people who aren't. Uh, because actually, interestingly, Stephen, I actually think that's at the heart of a lot of our national anxiety on both sides of the aisle. I've, I've got a very good friend who, um, you know, is frankly less of a good friend anymore. Like a lot of us have had this experience because, you know, his politics are so different than mine. But we had a conversation not long ago where he was saying to me, I'm really worried about the future of the country for my son. Mm. And I was saying, I'm really worried about the future of the country for my son. And now we had different reasons, right? Like he's worried about what he would probably call like wokeism and stuff like that. And and I'm worried about everything from the the health of our democracy to our climate and that sort of thing. But at the heart of it is we both feel like our country is is getting away from us. And I think that one of the things that he and I would probably agree on, we haven't discussed it yet, is that it would be good for America if more people who disagreed worked together and knew each other and had personal relationships. Thousand percent. You're singing my song. And yeah. uh, to just use the cult frame for a minute, uh, when people would get into the Moonies, the cult I was in, or Scientology or something, and then they might try to zealously recruit their family and friends, and their family and friends would look it up and go, wait a minute, the guy was a science fiction writer, or the guy you know, was a convicted felon. Uh, and they would try to use facts to argue the cult member out, which would just confirm their indoctrination that the world is going to persecute you, especially if you're in a religious cult of some kind, right? right and right. the worst thing you can do with someone who's been subjected to undue influence is to cut off, block them, mute them, not invite them for Thanksgiving, etc. Because the way people get out, and people do get out, they do get disillusioned. They, you know, the brainwashing is not 100% forever. People experience it, but they need a way out to face, to save face to a certain extent, to not have somebody said, I told you the Moonies were a cult, Steve. How right. come you didn't listen to me? That which just made me feel worse when I first got well, out. You, you felt judged. Yeah, and, totally. And, and that's, that's, I think a big part of it. And, and it's about, you know, I, so I have, as you know, I have this podcast majority 54 where what we do is we're progressives, but we spend a lot of time. That's why we had you on. We spend a lot of time talking about how do we have conversations with people who disagree with us in ways that a might bring them closer to our position and B doesn't, uh, you know, sacrifice our relationship with them. You know, a, a lot right. of people listen to our show, listen, because they have that, conservative aunt or that friend from high school they would like to maintain a relationship with oh you know we have a large following from people who are progressives who live in red areas for instance yeah yep. and and so i you know i it's not uncommon that people uh you know on the left will look at myself and my co-host and say some sort of you know intimation that we are 
compromising ourselves morally by trying to, you know, reach out to and speak with and build relationships with people who voted for Trump and who, you know, believe in the big lie and things like that. And I always say two things. One, I live in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have relationships with. I, I work with people who vote differently than sure. me. I, that's a, it's, an, it's a part of existing in this part of the world. Um, that's number one. And number two... I'm not morally compromising myself. I'm trying to save people's souls. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not, I'm not joining the other side. I'm, I'm conducting what I believe is like missionary evangelical work. And, and so to me, that's very worthwhile. So let me offer a tweak to that position, if I may, and sure. use it if it works and ignore it if, if it doesn't yeah, work yeah, no, for please. you. But, I take the position, and I've been doing this for 46 mm -hmm. years, helping people get out of these authoritarian structures, political mm -hmm. cults, you know, religious cults, et cetera. I take the position that I'm not trying to save someone's soul or persuade them to leave the group. I take the position, hey, you're an intelligent person, I respect you, and I'm for controlling your own mind, your own thoughts, your own body, and not letting someone else tell you what to be thinking and what to feel and react. So I take the position of, hey, I'm doing the best I can. I don't know everything. I'm open to learning. Sure. I wanna, I wanna hear your story. I wanna understand your journey of, and, and if it's an anti-vax person, did you always not like vaccinated? Oh, no, I always got vaccinated. Oh, so that, tell me mm -hmm. your story of how your beliefs changed. Like, was it a video? Was it a person, et cetera? And I take the position, and I do want to do a shout out for Adam Grant. I don't know if you know Adam's work, mm. but he has a very wonderful um, uh, podcast, and he's a Wharton professor of social psychology. But he wrote this wonderful book called Think Again, and it, it completely resonates with everything that my four books talk about, which is essentially, hey, show me the evidence. Let's go back and forth. Let me step into your shoes. Yeah. Please step into my shoes. And if I need to change my opinion to be more like yours, I'm there. But let's keep our egos out of it. Like, let's just seek truth. And, and, and the other point I want to, and then I'll stop, is think about the kids. Think about our children, our grandchildren. Think many generations from now as you're making decisions. What kind of world do you want your children to grow up in? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I should clarify, like when I, I would never say to somebody I'm trying to persuade, like, hey, I'm trying to save your soul. Cause like, okay. I totally agree that, I mean, they would be like, screw you. you exactly. Know? Um, I, I mean more like when I am criticized by people on the left ah. for the fact that I talk to those folks, like oh. I, the way I want to put it to the people on the left is I'm like, Hey, look, I, it, I'm not joining them. I'm trying to save them, you know? And so, yeah, you know, it'd be like if people were like, hey, how dare you try and get people to get vaccinated? You know, right. you'd be like, whoa, 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 I'm trying to help this person, right? Exactly. So that, that's more what I mean. We're, we're definitely in alignment on the approach. Great. And so for me, uh, in terms of my life work, where, and now I'm gonna, I know you said you're a recovering lawyer, but I'm gonna just uh, sure. uh, talk to that part of your psyche uh, for a moment. 
I realized about seven, eight years ago, after all these years of activism, nothing was changing in terms of all of the work, all the TV interviews, all the books. And, and I understood that the law itself is about a hundred years out of date for understanding how the mind works and for understanding mm -hmm. social psychology. Mm -hmm. And I got involved with a forensic think tank in, at Harvard Medical School, has lawyers and psych forensic psychiatrists and psychologists. And I did a presentation and they basically said, we agree, we think the law needs to be updated uh, you need to go get a doctorate and do a scientific study on your model and show whether it has efficacy. And I'm like, I'm 63. And they're like, so what? Do you want to change the law or don't you? That's this cool. is what you need to do because there's no scientific studies about brainwashing yeah. or mind control. And so one of, one of the professors there is like, I will supervise your research. I go to fielding. I've sent 30 students there. Da, 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 and it's like, okay, the universe is telling yeah, me cool. do this thing. So now I'm on this quest to explain to people ethical influences, things like informed consent, and unethical influences, lies, like outright yeah. lying, withholding vital information or distorting it to be palatable, to just kind of help people have a frame that it isn't all bad mind control like we need influence but we need to align with the values and what we don't want right. to align with are leaders who are malignant narcissists who right. are incapable of empathy who think the world is all about them and they're you know paranoid and think they're above the law like donald trump chapter yeah. three yes i did compare him with jim jones and hubbard of scientology and my former cult leader but most predators yeah. are malignant narcissists. Sure. And just educating people what to watch out for will save a lot of people from a lot of trauma. I Well, I think educating people in general, yes, I think saves people from trauma. Like for me, one of the things that was really surprising to me when I, when I went to therapy was that, you know, a, a good portion of cognitive processing therapy was kind of just like going to graduate school. You know, my great uncle had told me before I started therapy that it's getting a master's degree in yourself. And he was right. It was a lot of it was my therapist asking me about the way I felt and about my symptoms and then going to the whiteboard and literally just drawing it out for me and teaching me how my brain worked. And I remember thinking, and I still feel this way. I remember thinking if just this part of therapy where I'm taught about my brain, if that were like a two-day block in basic training, then I feel like it was a lot more likely that after I came home, I would have been like, I think I should go get help. I think, I think what I learned about PTSD, I can see it in myself, but I never got that education. And so, yeah, I agree. Like yes. learning about the brain is invaluable. So as a therapist, I'm of the school that says the purpose of therapy is to get the client out of therapy as quickly right. as possible to do psychoeducation, give tools and skills and, and, and help them organize. And I basically say, hey, it's your, it's your mind. You should control it. Don't be controlled by your thoughts. Don't be controlled by feelings. Don't be addicted to you know physical things that are harmful to your body 
and I say the goal is always to be in the here and now in your body, which is the opposite of dissociation. Be in the here and now with an internal locus of control. Don't look outside of you for someone to tell you what to believe or what is real. Learn about the mind and what, you know, develop a toolkit for coping and strategies and have a positive orientation to the future. Have a goal. You can always yeah. change it, but have a goal of what you want to do with your life. And so with that frame, I'm able to help my clients who've had horrible traumatic experiences and cults like beatings, torturing, rapings, mm -hmm. etc. But I teach them if you're in the here and now, right? Mm -hmm. There should be no intrusive feeling or thought or episode that is getting triggered. So I explain right. triggers, I explain how to identify them and how to neutralize them. But I basically am teach my clients a strategy for rewiring their neurons because mm -hmm. you can get into a very destructive loop in your brain where you're not solution focused. So you wind up, and I'll- Well, you're, you're survival focused. And, it, it, uh, and that's where I was for 10 years. Yeah, exactly. But so the one, I'm gonna say just one more point and then move sure. on to your interview. And that is the difference in memory from an associated memory and a dissociated memory. And anything that's traumatic from my experience as a therapist and having been through numerous traumatic episodes in my life, I want all my traumatic memories to be on a TV screen on to the side, I'm here, I'm not in danger. That happened to the younger me. Mm -hmm. So I'm not in associated mode in that memory uh, to and re-experiencing the trauma. And by identifying the parts of the psyche that are still trapped and are in a time distortion, because they're not, mm -hmm. they don't understand that 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 isn't real anymore for us. Yeah. So yeah. it works. It really is powerful. It's wonderful. Yeah. And, and I think what I had to learn was that I couldn't do that without going to the trauma and identifying it and knowing how to treat it and, and, and regaining some degree of control. And so, uh, but, you know, because I spent a very long time doing what a lot of people do, which is trying to outrun it and trying mm -hmm. to keep it at bay when really what the only way out was through. Oh, absolutely. Uh, denial is not just a river in Egypt, right? right, right, right. <laughs> you really need to own it and, and take the good things that you learned out of a bad experience, post-traumatic growth, et cetera. Uh, when I got out of the Moonies, I nearly died in a van crash. I was horribly traumatized. Uh, and I was so embarrassed. Like I felt like my mind had been raped and like I had been you yeah. know, taken over by, you know, fascist, right-wing fascists that were anti-Semites. I'm Jewish. I was like, what <laughs> happened to my mind? But the yeah. point is, is that there's life after. So I'm part of a group mm -hmm. of, we're doing hashtag I got out, like there's yeah, life cool. after cult or life after mm -hmm. abusive relationship, or I got out of an authoritarian right. country. <clears throat> I want to go back to something you said about guns. Uh, we've had an epidemic of shootings. 
Mm -hmm. um, and I do want to say for our listeners, <clears throat> sorry, I got a little froggy. You're okay. Um, <clears throat> let me just take a minute. That you had a viral video when you were running for president where you were blindfolded. Describe the scene. Because sure. I, I think millions of people watch that and maybe they don't connect it with you, you. Yeah, I get that a lot. Like, they're like, oh, you're the guy from the gun ad. Yeah. Um, it was actually just, it was just before running for president. It was when I was running for Senate. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of how I ended up politically known. Yes. Um, is that uh, I made uh, an ad, a 30-second ad, that was an argument in favor of gun safety measures uh, and responsible gun ownership. And in the ad, uh, I am blindfolded and assembling a rifle. It was, you know, basically the rifle I, I carried in the military while making the case for background checks. And uh, and so, yes, it, it was very unique because it was sort of it, it was the first time somebody had made an argument for uh, gun regulation, sensible gun regulation, while demonstrating that they knew what they were talking about. Exactly. Because one of the most common sort of, I think, arguments back from the, you know, like rabid pro gun world uh, is to say like, well, they don't know what they're talking about. And so it was just my way of being like, yeah, I'm for this and I know what the heck I'm talking about. And yeah, it, it, uh, it caught on. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. So what's your take on the rash of horrible gun violence and shootings? Uh, well, I mean, I have a lot of takes on it. I'm, I'm on the board of Giffords, so I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm actively involved in this. And tell, tell our listeners, you know, Giffords was a, a politician who was shot. Yeah, G uh, Gabby Giffords yeah. Uh, founded Giffords um, yeah. to, uh, to fight, you know, both at the state level and at the national level for um, sensible, you know, gun safety measures. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and there's a couple of things here, I guess. I'd say one, um, I, I, again, I think that as a country, we have got a large portion of the country that is sort of not a not the majority but a portion of the country that is sort of said you know what uh, i won't be dealing with those feelings um and and that is exacerbated by the fact that look people who sell guns uh have a major vested interest in telling us uh, all these reasons why you know sensible regulations are not at all sensible and why they'll you know like i mean the NRA, which is fading a bit now, is not really like if you've ever filled out a, which I have, you know, or looked at the questionnaire that you get when they want you to seek their endorsement. I never got it. I had an F rating, uh, but I've seen the questionnaire <laughs> and the questionnaire. It's not like, what is your position on a person's right to own a gun? It, every, every question is like, what is your position on a firearm manufacturer's ability to because that's who they really represent yeah where of they're course funded. so there's that that's an aspect of what's going on um and then from a from a legal change perspective um you know a lot of people focus on a lot of different things assault weapons bans and, and stuff like that and i'm for most of that stuff um but where i think we ought to have a much deeper conversation that the public ought to be much more aware of is the laws that grant immunity from uh, lawsuits, immunity from civil prosecution for gun manufacturers. And the thing is, is when I, when you initially bring this up, 
what people think, because this is what the gun lobby tells them, is that what we're saying is is that well, you ought to be able to sue gun makers just for making guns. That's not what I'm saying. Right. I'm saying that a special law was passed two decades ago that says gun companies are going to get special protections that no other company gets and that you you literally just cannot sue them. There's a shield. So you can't you can't bring a lawsuit that says, "Hey, you had every reason to know that this person you shouldn't have sold them a gun that if you sold them a gun this was going to happen you had every reason to question whether or not too many you know the same person was buying too many guns from this gun maker you were selling to so there's no liability at all for gun companies everybody always wonders they're like well why don't we already have smart guns right like where it's like it it reacts to your fingerprint so that only you can fire the weapon it's not for a lack of technology and yes, it's a lack of it being mandated by the government. But if we, if you had the ability to hold gun companies accountable in court in the exact same way that tobacco companies have been held right. accountable in court, I promise you we would have those because gun companies would be like, we have to manufacture and sell these or otherwise you know, juries are going to say, hey, you have the ability to sell this gun this way. Exactly. And we would expect you to do that. Otherwise, you're not exercising reasonable care. And, and right. so- when you think about it, um, like when I was a kid, you got on an airplane and I remember getting on planes with my parents and they'd be like, do you want the smoking section or the non-smoking section, right? On airplanes. Whereas yep. now we drive down the street and if my son, who's I'm about to turn nine, sees someone in the car next to us smoking a cigarette, he's like, dad, that person is smoking. Like it's, it is, you know, worth noting to him. Yeah. Well, you know, gun violence could be that rare and it doesn't require necessarily a bunch of massive regulations what it requires is treating gun companies in court the exact same way we treat the manufacturer of any other product if we did that well a lot of things would change the same way they have on smoking in the united states exactly and i might add that there are oil companies and countries that want to keep people addicted to coal and oil because of the bottom line of the money the hell with the planet, the hell mm -hmm. with everybody's health. Uh, they want to make the money, and so they've spent hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, uh, doing disinformation, distracting people, et cetera, from doing common sense uh, legislation. I wanna tell you, by the way, my former cult owns a gun factory in Pennsylvania. No, really? They make assault rifles. Really? And and the brother has a religious group called the Rod of Iron Ministry, where he takes a quote out of the New Testament saying the Rod of Iron is an AR-15 and is Seems advocating- slightly out of context. <laughs> yes. It's called eisegesis to talk about Bible, inappropriate Bible scholarship. But they have two compounds training people how to kill yeah, other Americans. Stuff. That's that's scary stuff. Yeah, no it's not it. okay. Yeah. But our enemies want Americans to kill each other so they can take over Ukraine or they can take over Taiwan or other places. They mm -hmm. they like to foster this. Oh, free oh, sure. speech and you Americans need freedom. They don't allow their people. Putin doesn't allow people to own a private gun, much less right. a bullet. They'll go right. to jail if they have a bullet right. in Moscow. 
But Americans are like, we need our guns. And, the, and Putin's like smiling, yes, you do. And of course, that uh, spy who is outed in the NRA mm -hmm. is now a parliamentician and in yeah. Russia, right? Mar Maria Butina or yeah, something yeah. like yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's her name. Americans need to wake up that there are forces that are bent on destroying our democracy and they, they'll succeed if we enough people don't understand it and do something. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Yeah. Yay, go yeah. Jason, <laughs> love it. So w if you were going to give a message to vets, yeah, uh, what would it be? Um, Please. Uh, I, I think it, it would be that post-traumatic growth is real, that it is worth pursuing, and um, that uh, whatever you have gone through that has you feeling as though you might need help, uh, whatever it was, it, it was legitimate. You, you earned it, that it is real trauma. Because, you know, when you, when you go into the military, um, there's this necessary form of brainwashing, right? And I, I say it in this case necessary because like if you don't genuinely believe that what you're doing is no big deal and that somebody has it worse, it's very difficult to do a very frightening and difficult job, right? Yeah. So uh, for me as an intelligence officer to go into meetings where there's a reasonable uh, possibility that I could be walking into a trap, that I could be kidnapped or killed, and to go into these meets with... Um, unsavory characters of questionable allegiances to gather information and bring it back, I've got to feel like that's no big deal or I can't do the job. The same way right. my buddy Steven as a Marine in, in uh, Iraq was not, you know, he, he had a different job than me as an infantryman. So like if he didn't believe that what he was doing was no big deal, like how's he going to go back out the next day and go on patrol when he got shot at the day before? Right. So I get that, why the military does that. The problem is, and what I'm frequently telling other vets is, they didn't flip that switch off for us when we left. Nobody disabused us of the notion that what we did was no big deal. And, and so as a result, we spend a lot of time uh, suffering these symptoms and thinking, well, it can't be PTSD because I have it on good authority that what I did was no big deal. And, you know, I think oftentimes society looks at that and mistakes it for machismo and sometimes it is but but oftentimes it's not that oftentimes it's not us feeling like getting help is a sign of weakness it's not necessarily that oftentimes what it is is you know you may have a vet like me like i didn't think there was anything weak about getting help uh, right. i didn't think other vets who got help were weak i just thought i didn't i didn't earn that like i shouldn't have to get that help because i was told that what i did was no big deal and i believed it and and so I try and get that across to other vets that like what you what you did was a big deal and uh, you should get help and getting help will work because that's the other problem is that when we don't have many portrayals out there of people who have achieved post-traumatic growth, even though it's extremely common, as you know, we don't see that. What we see on TV or in movies are post-traumatic stress disorder individuals who are, you know, not treated or in the throes of it or right. are, you know engaged in criminal behavior and then kill themselves. And when that's what you think PTSD is, well, then you think PTSD is a terminal diagnosis. So why would you go out of your way to get diagnosed with PTSD? So I try and get it across to people that it doesn't have to be in any way a terminal diagnosis and you can get better. Right. So you use the brainwashing word. So I'm using that as yeah, a sure. green light to just use my my model of the influence continuum that's the name of the podcast yeah 
And there really are differences between ethical and unethical influence. I'm not going to keep holding it up, but people can go to freedomofmind.com, learn about undue influence. But for me, what happens in the military is very different than being recruited into an authoritarian cult. Mm -hmm. You know what you're getting into. Right. You, you, there are standards, there's a legal system, there are checks and balances. They're not always working properly, but they are there. There's a term limit. You get compensated, not enough, uh, and not enough benefits. But the the whole notion of what happens at boot camp, and I did send you before we started recording after, after a little reading. journal article about the it's called dissociation mm -hmm. and um as you were saying as you're being taught to be a soldier identity capable of pulling the trigger on other people you have to put your old identity to the side mm -hmm. so you can be effective and so there but there really are strategies for how to heal Mm -hmm. the dual identity when you're in a mind control authoritarian cult there's never a legitimate reason to leave there's never compensation <laughs> all of the yeah. checks and balances are missing you're stuck forever and those a lot of those people do commit suicide because they're mm -hmm. trained to stay in the in the group mm -hmm. no matter what um so I, I I question the word, use of the word brainwashing. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't because it, it actually. But it is something. influence, and yeah. they really know what they're doing to break down a person's identity, give them a number, give them yeah. a uniform, etc. Well, I don't mean that the military overall brainwashes you. I just mean that it, I just you know colloquially I meant that there's sort of this indoctrination into this idea that what you're doing is not as big of a deal as what other people have had. And to I'm with. trying to make a distinction yeah. that for me as a mental health professional, being in the military is what's called egocentonic. Like you, okay. your family loves you, you're still, you're in the, yeah, yeah, your, your service is valued. Whereas when you're in an authoritarian cult, religious cult, political cult, that identity is typically not it's dystonic yeah. to who you were before. So yeah, like yeah. I became a right-wing fascist when I was like writing poetry and, right. and protesting against the Vietnam War. I'm in yeah. the cult and I'm fasting for Nixon during Watergate because God told Moon that Nixon shouldn't leave the presidency. Huh? Right, right, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. so, but there, the, the point is, is that coming back, we need to be in control of our own minds and our own bodies. And if mm -hmm. we're having thoughts of hurting ourselves or hurting other people, get help, talk yeah. talk about it. And there are many people who are wounded healers like yourself who say, mm -hmm. look, it, I'm really enjoying my life. I'm enjoying my kids. I'm enjoying my wife. I, I get to sleep at night and not have intrusive nightmares. Mm -hmm. I'm not always hypervigilant that someone's trying to shoot me. Right. Whatever. Right. And your service is back there and not in the right. present right tense. Yeah. yeah. It's awesome. So we're wrapping up, Jason. You're amazing. You're wonderful. Thank you. Um, I do really think there's value in talking to people who have different beliefs than you. Yeah. I agree. You know, I mean, without that's... judgment, just like I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Different religious groups, different ethnic groups. 
expand yourself. Human beings are amazing and the world is amazing. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I, I think that the key to all of that is earnest curiosity. Like if your curiosity is earnest, it will come across and, and it actually expands your ability to bring people a little closer to your point of view. Yeah, and I would say love yourself and love yeah. your wife, love your kids, you know, yeah. the love multiplies. Yeah, yeah. You know, when people are on their deathbeds, they're never saying, I should have worked more hours. They are always right. saying, I wish I spent more time with the people who I value and cherish. Yep. So that's right. Pick up Invisible Storm. Great book. It will inspire you, I believe, and um and share it and continued success, Jason. And and uh I hope we talk again and um same I wish here. you the best, and I wish America to resurrect itself out of this state of polarization where we can come together and realize we really need each other. Human being, this whole ideology of Ayn Rand, of selfishness is good and altruism is evil, that's a toxic cult ideology. And anyone who still thinks the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged is great like needs a reality check because the beliefs are wrong and they're driving us in the wrong direction. I'll, I'll, I'll put in a plug for a book I didn't write that uh, I think people don't often enough see as sort of the counterweight to Atlas Shrugged, which is a book called Jennifer Government. I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's, no. uh, it's a novel and it's uh, it kind of is the, the alternative view. It's really pretty neat. So, Who um, wrote it? Do you remember? Uh, Alex, I can't remember his last name. He's my wife's favorite writer, um, but I can't remember his last name. But well, we're going to do a blog and embed the video, and we'll put the the the, cool. the link to the book uh, yeah. and, and all of that. My and, publisher would probably say that my plugging someone else's book during a book tour interview is not the best, but whatever. We're we won't tell anybody. Sure. No, yeah. I I feel like we plugged your book, and yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, it's, it's a bestseller. It's doing well. It's so I'm doing well, worried. and yeah. and you said you're donating a lot of the profits, if not all, to helping vets. So yeah. I'll my royalties publisher likes to you know keep their money yes uh, which is fine that's that's their business that's yes what they're supposed to do so. yeah my last book had simon and schuster so i know a little bit yeah. about that it's all yeah. good blessings thank you much success and uh we'll be in touch thank you steven thanks so much it. take care all right bye that's it for today's episode of the influence continuum I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast by Nasser Malik. To read in-depth articles about influence, both positive and negative, visit my website at freedomofmind.com. On Twitter and Instagram, my handle is at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you fully grasp the complex web of undue influence. I also have a three-and-a-half-hour online course titled Understanding Cults, The Basics, which can be found on my website. If you're a former cult member, I congratulate you on your bravery invite you to use the hashtag IGotOut and join our online community at IGotOut.org. 
Thanks for listening, and remember, love is stronger than mind control.